You may be seated, church. What a gospel, amen? Amen. The wonderful cross. The actual answer, the actual thing God does to meet us in our sorrow, to meet us in the reality of the curse. Amen. I'm going, to do, uh, I'm going to do something I don't normally do, which is I'm going to introduce our preacher today. Uh, and the reason is because a lot of you in this room haven't heard him preach yet. So uh, Craig's going to deliver uh, our sermon today, and I'm stoked for this uh, for many reasons. I love Craig. Craig is my pastor. Craig is one of my favorite preachers. I am so blessed uh, to get to be led and, and served by this guy. And I already heard the nine, like, is spot on. Like, trust me, you guys are, you're in for a treat. Uh, but the reason I'm doing this is beyond just Craig's preaching, I'm excited for it, and, and I want to pray over him and bless him. Uh, there is something else to this. So one of the discussions we had early on when we were talking about the feasibility of coming together as two churches and planning a manual was essentially this conviction of we want to be a church that takes good care of our pastors, that actually um, encourages our pastors to be healthy spiritually and to grow in their faith. And so one of the things we landed on our whole transitional leadership team as we were working through that was that we wanted to be a church that put sabbaticals into the job description of our pastor, uh, that we wanted to be intentional about um, not just encouraging, requiring <laughs> uh, our pastors to take seasons of rest for not just like awesome vacation, but for spiritual growth, rejuvenation, for leaning into physical, emotional, and spiritual health uh, so that we don't see burnout, so that we don't see um, our pastors flame out of the ministry, which is just becoming increasingly common in our, in our day and our time. And so what we landed on for that was that we wanted to see our pastors take a seven-week sabbatical for every seven years of vocational service. Uh, and so with that, uh, Craig is due. <laughs> He's actually a little overdue. He's, that would have been last summer, but I don't know if you guys remember. There's a little bit going on last summer in our two churches. It was a little crazy. And so uh, we decided to delay that. But I'm excited for this in just a couple of weeks, June 13th. Is that right? In June 13th, Craig is going to begin uh, a seven-week sabbatical. Um, and I want you guys to know about that for a couple of reasons. The first one's really practical, and that's that, listen, there's stuff that Craig does uh, that isn't going to get done for two months. <laughs> uh, it's just, and that's, that's good. It's good for us to feel a little bit of that loss because it encourages us uh, to be in it with him, to pray for him, to be excited when he comes back off sabbatical, right? Uh, but, but the other piece to that is, again, this isn't something that we just see as like, we want to give our pastors a primo vacation. This is, is more is similar to what we would maybe call like a personal retreat. Uh, and so to that end, I partnered with several people and learned about this and prayed about this and kind of made um, a, a bunch of different kind of pick and choose your own assignments uh, for the purpose of emotional growth, physical growth, spiritual growth, all those things. And Craig and Kim are rooting through that and are going to pick several of those things they want to engage over that period uh, and actually like stay connected with the pastors as we kind of pray over them. And I want to encourage you guys to join with us in praying over that praying for this time to be really good and healthy and awesome for the McAlevey family. Uh, you know, he, here's the thing about Craig, uh, that if you know him, you know this. Uh, this dude works his tail off to the glory of God and for the service and benefit of our church. And 99% of what he does is so behind the scenes that no one knows about it except him and Jesus. He's such a gift. Their family is such a gift to our church. And so it's a privilege to get to do this for him. So Craig, you want to come up here? I'm going to pray for him. And then he's going to lead us in the word. Jesus, I want to thank you so much for my brother Craig. I thank you for the way he so consistently and so accurately portrays your gospel, your heart, uh, to our whole church, but really specifically to me and my family. The McAlevey's are such a gift, and we're so grateful for them, Lord. And we want to pray just tons of fruitfulness and rest and life and rejuvenation um, over this sabbatical season, uh, not just for Craig, but for their whole family. Lord, I pray that in this season, uh, you would move in power, that you would supernaturally show up uh, and encourage growth, but that you would also just remind Craig afresh of the call you've put on his life, of the heart you have for him. Pray that him and Kim would, would come out of this season of sabbatical um, yes, refreshed and encouraged, but also just with a fresh fire in their bones for what it means to give of themselves, to honor you, and to serve your church. 
Lord, I pray your blessing, your anointing over Craig today as he preaches the word. Pray that each of us would have open, receptive hearts to hear from you and that you would be glorified in this space today. We love you, Jesus. We trust you for these things. Pray in your name. Amen. Thank you, Brother Sam. It is humbling. Um, and I just want to thank Sam and Jim and Jesse and the pastors, and they are the pastors, and you all um, for this opportunity. It's a blessing to be up here um, in front of you guys to speak. It's my first time. My name is Craig McAlevey, if you don't know me, and I am one of your pastors. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't echo what Jesse had said last week when he talked about how intentional Chris is and the team when they put together their worship set. Um, the song we just sang, The Wondrous Cross, Oh, the Wonderful Cross, um, that bids me to die that I may truly live. Um, Chris has access to our preaching document, so um, there's a passage in there that I put in there that I'm, I'm assuming he saw that. He probably did, and and added that hymn for that reason. All of that to say that, that I hope you guys pay attention to the songs that we sing and the words that come out of your mouth and intentionally try to connect them to the sermon because that's the intent. And Chris does a wonderful job and his team does a wonderful job doing that. And uh, that is a gift to us because um, there is a great deal of thought put into what happens here on Sunday morning. So um, just uh, take that for what you will. Um, Turn to Matthew 28. We're going to be um, in Matthew 28 this morning, beginning in verse 16. So turn in your Bibles or turn on your Bibles or grab a Bible from under your chair, and uh, we're going to get started here. Um, we're in this series called Full of Jesus, and this is the last message of six ser- sermons in this series um, called, this particular one today is called Making Disciples. Um, The truth is there's a lot that could be said about disciple-making. There's a lot of sermons that can come out of this passage. Uh, We could spend six weeks just on this passage alone, um, but we're not. We get one today. And I think it's appropriate because really every message that you hear on Sunday mornings, uh, the intent is to send us back out into the world to be disciple makers. There's always some vestige, some, some gospel message in there that, that edifies Jesus pouring into us and then pouring out of us to when we leave here every Sunday that we are equipped to go out into the world to not just be nice to people, as important as that is, but to make disciples. And so we're going to talk about that today. We're going to talk about disciple-making. Disciple, discipleship is a word we're familiar with. Disciple-making, maybe not so much. Disciple-making is simply the condition of being a disciple. It's like a friendship, right? When you're friends with somebody, that's a friendship. You are a friend in the context of that friendship. And so this is a big subject. And as, as Jesse preached on community last week, and he said that we experience both the, uh, the, both, uh, the pouring in of Jesus into our lives, as well as the pouring out of Jesus of our lives in community, in biblical community, the same thing happens in disciple-making, discipleship, right? Jesus pours in, Jesus pours out of us, and Je- uh, Jesus. Jesse said that we, we make, made a turn last week towards the pouring out of Jesus, and we're going to make an even harder turn today because this is going to be not about discipleship, not about the condition of pouring into one another and pouring out of one another, but specifically what it is to make disciples, because after all, this is something that Jesus takes quite seriously. So if you're not in Matthew 28, please get there. Uh, This text doesn't need much setup, because Easter was only six weeks ago, so I think, I hope that's fresh on your mind, um, what what the celebration of Easter was, the commemoration of Holy Week and everything that happened. Um, it should still be fresh on your minds. Basically, what we encounter in our text today is the 40 days, part of a scene of, of part of those 40 days where Jesus um, rose from the dead to put a final stamp on Satan's sin and death and rose from the dead. But before he went to heaven, he hung out for a while, for 40 days, to have a very specific message he wanted to give his disciples. And it says in Acts 1, that after he suffered, Jesus, that he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of those 40 days, speaking about the kingdom of God. Today is one of those appearances during those 40 days. And I want you to hang on to that phrase, the kingdom of God, that Jesus was talking about the kingdom of God, because we're going to come back to that towards the end of our message this morning. So I'm going to read from Gospel of Matthew 
chapter 28, beginning in verse 16, and then I'll pray for our time if you would follow along with me. It says this, The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Father, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for this place, and Lord, we thank you for your word, and we need your spirit today, God. I'm a conduit of of the gospel, of the, the Holy Spirit today. Lord, this message is as much for me as it is for those who are here in this place today or watching online or listening in the future, Lord. We need your spirit to animate our hearts, God, as you once did to save us, Father. Draw us closer to you as we experience the love of Christ pouring into us, Lord. Uh, inspire us to a call to action to leave here to make disciples, to love others. Father, we need you this morning, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew begins uh, this passage by saying there's 11 disciples, and some worshiped and some doubted. And I think there's something for us in that simple little verse before we get started, before we get to the meat of this idea that Jesus is sending us to go out and make disciples. Um, Why 11? We know why 11. Judas is no longer on the scene. He has met his demise after betraying Jesus. But I want us to consider for a moment who was a part of those 11. Thomas may come to mind, doubting doubting Thomas. Jesus appeared to the the apostles while they were behind locked doors to, um, to, to appear to doubting Thomas. But I want to talk for a minute about Peter. Peter was one of those 11. Think about for a moment. Denied Jesus three times, Peter. Mr. Impetuous, impulsive, and passionate, Peter. At times, misguided, Peter. How about this? Restored by Jesus, Peter. First to preach the gospel on Pentecost, Peter. Peter was one of these 11, and we may, not be able to, we may not be able to relate to the passionate preacher that Peter was, but we can all relate to the numbskull that Peter was, right? His misguidedness, his, his passion, he's like a puppy dog, right? He's just kind of all over the place, he's cutting people's ears off and doing all kinds of weird things, right? Good intentions, but misguided at times. We can relate to that. This is the Peter who Jesus says three times, Peter, do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus responds, good, because I'm not done with you, Peter. Go and feed my sheep. Shepherd my people. And then we read that some doubted. Now, we don't know for sure how many people are present in this scene. Scholars debate as to whether or not there were just the 11 or the 11 plus some others because they find it hard to believe, especially if this comes after the scene where Thomas is present and Jesus shows himself to Thomas, that they would doubt. We don't know for sure. Um, The point is, some worshipped and others doubted. And I just think what this, this does for us is it brings this scene to us more, it makes this scene more real for us. Because if this was a made-up story, I think they all would have worshipped. I think the author would have said, yeah, they all worshipped. Who wouldn't? The risen Jesus appears, they're going to worship. But this is a real scene. Some of them worshipped, and some of them hesitated. They were like, and what I'm seeing and experiencing, is that really a real thing? And the reason I say this is, even in our present context this morning here at Emmanuel, Some of you walked in and you prepared on Sunday morning and you knew what you were going to do this morning. You come here to listen to the word of God, to hear songs, to worship God. And some of you came in with doubt. Some of you came in with hesitant spirits for various reasons. And we're glad both of you are here, all of you, with all of those attitudes and mindsets and hearts and confusions and sometimes misguided, sometimes we're spot on. And there's two things I want to say about this. And and the first thing is that worship is always our first response to an encounter with Jesus. 
as the love of Jesus pours into you, which is what we've been talking about for six weeks, as the love of Jesus pours into you, that love will initially reflect back up to him in true worship. And then the, the, Jesus, the love of Jesus that pours into you then, reflecting back up to him, that then becomes the fulcrum or the hinge point for us to love other people. And here's why this is important. Because if Jesus pouring into us does not first spark true worship in us to him, then Jesus pouring into us can just become head knowledge and we become spiritually obese and apathetic and lazy. Our vertical relationship with God informs all of our horizontal relationships. We were designed to worship God. Sam said it in his, in his specific message on abiding in Christ, being connected to the vine from John 15. We are built to abide. We are built to worship something. God is who we are built to worship. This is why Jim spent his entire sermon when he was talking about the mortification of sin or the killing of sin in our lives, where he talked about specifically killing idolatry in our lives because we will worship something. Our tendency, though, is to worship the gift and not the one who gave that gift. That's what idolatry is. We need to kill that. So worship is always our first response to an encounter with Jesus. Otherwise, we're going to see the message of this passage of disciple-making as a burden. And we're just going to see it as a to-do, and we're not going to do it. So that's the first thing that I want to say. The second thing regarding this idea that some doubted, who among us has perfect faith? None of us have this nailed. These disciples who are about to be told by the risen Jesus to go into the world and make disciples, they're just as frail as you and I. They were just as insecure as you and I. They were just as messed up as you and I. They spent three of the most amazing years of their lives with Jesus. They were as physically relationally, spiritually connected to him as anyone on earth has ever been, only to see him brutally crucified on a cross. And they had to be wondering, what in the world's going to happen to us? That's why they're locked behind closed doors. If this happened to Jesus, what about us? Is he done with us? He's not. It's just that things look a little different now that he has been crucified and resurrected Jesus is about to implant his Holy Spirit in them, and that Holy Spirit will allow the gospel to flourish and to grow and spill out all over the world, and you and I are recipients of that right here, sitting in this room 2,000 years later, to the truth of the gospel and the obedience of the disciples. All they had to do was to be available. All they had to do was to be available and to abide in Jesus. Even these 11 with their imperfect faith Human as they were, they were available. So that's where I want to start today, is I want to ask you, are you available? Are you available to be used by God? Because church, Jesus has a command for us here. We, we can't get around that. He has something for us, and it is a command from Jesus. But here's the thing. It's a command wrapped in love. Only God can give a, a loving, true loving command. His, his command is wrapped in love, which really makes it more of an invitation into the work that he's doing, the glorious work that he's doing. So let that preface our time this morning. Let that preface our time this morning. In verse 18, we read that Jesus draws near, which I love the fact that Jesus comes near to his disciples. And he tells them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He begins this sending message by telling them and us that what he's about to say comes with some authority. Author Jonathan Lehman calls this authority imperium. Imperium. It's a word that simply means supreme power or absolute dominion. It's this idea of where does the buck stop? Right? The buck stops with Jesus. Who is the authority to which all other authorities must answer? Jesus is that authority. Jesus is saying, I have supreme authority. 
So listen up. And the reason that this is important for us, church, this morning is I want you to know this isn't me as one of your pastors trying to get you to do something you don't want to do. That's not what this is. I'm not a good enough motivational speaker to do that. I'm not. This is, this is Jesus' authority telling us that he has something for us. He has something for you and to me, and it comes with authority. We're not coaches up here. We're under shepherds that are doing this along with you guys. And this is as much for me as it is for you. But there are four commands that we read in this message from Jesus. One is to go. The second is to make disciples. The third is to baptize those disciples. And the fourth is to teach those disciples. And then there's a fifth. He tells them to remember that I'm with you always, which is really... Just, you need to abide in Christ. You need to be connected to the vine. It's what Sam talked about in week three, I think it was, from John 15. Abiding in Christ, connecting to the vine to bear fruit. That's really what he's just reminding us of. And I don't need to spend any time on that because we've already spent three or four weeks talking about what that looks like, but it's critical. That's why he reminds us, I'm, I'm calling you to something huge, guys, but I'm with you. I'm not leaving you alone. So let's start with Go. <clears throat> go is such a great word. It's such a great word. It's such a rich word. It's a word of movement, right? A word of action. When we say go or we hear go, instinctively we should be saying, where? Where are we going to go? Now there's, there is a pejorative sense of the word go, isn't there? If you're sitting on Manchester Road and you're at a stoplight and you're behind a car and that car is the lead car and they're looking on their phone and the light turns green and they're not going... You're like me, I'm sure, just a gentle toot on the horn, and you're just like, come on, let's go. But inside, you're saying, come on, go, let's go. So there is this negative sense of, of go that there can be. But this word go is not simply go somewhere else, Christian, and go plant the gospel, go live, work, and play, and share the gospel somewhere else. It does mean that. And for some of you sitting here today, you will do that. The Holy Spirit will send you to a mission field, perhaps a foreign mission field. You'll be equipped. You'll go to a seminary. You'll, you'll, you'll get education. You'll join up with a sending agency like the International Mission Board, perhaps. And you'll be trained to go on the foreign mission field to share the gospel. You will, you will heed the Spirit's call. And while the Holy Spirit will lead some of you to go away, not all of us will go away, but we are all still commanded to make disciples nonetheless. And really this word go is as you are going, as you are going, set this in motion. It reminds me of Deuteronomy chapter six, where the Israelites are told to hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord, your God, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be as a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. It's a familiar passage, I'm sure, to most of us. It's called the Shema. Shema is the Hebrew word that means listen or hear. It's a lifestyle. The Israelites were saying, pay attention to this, hear this, engage this, and live it out in this particular context with their kids. And for those of us who have kids and who are Christians, or perhaps raised children when we were Christians, because I understand not all of us were believers when our kids were growing up. But for those of us that have, there was this sense of wanting to train our children, to, to grow our children in the faith, even before they had faith. And for those of you that may be discouraged that you did that and your kids aren't responding, the word of God does not come back void. God is still working in their hearts. Be encouraged by that. He is not done with them just like he's not done with Peter and just like he's not done with you. And he's made them your kids for a reason. Hold on to that. 
But we do this with our kids. Um, I, I, some of you may know I, I, I'm a part-time pastor and I'm a part-time school bus driver for the Rockwood School District. And I had this little kindergartner on my bus a couple of weeks ago and he's really chatty and he, he always talks to me and I can't hear most of what he says because he, it's loud and he talks very softly. And I'm a, I'm a substitute, so I don't have him all the time. I've had him about four or five times. But I heard him say one day last week, he said, who's in your heart? I said, excuse me? What did you say? Trying to drive the bus. He goes, who's in your heart? I said, what do you mean? He goes, is God in your heart? I said, yeah, Jesus is in my heart. Is Jesus in your heart? He said, he is. And he started to ask questions about God and make statements like, you know, God hates sin and Jesus died for our sin. And why is God so angry? And talking about Isaac and Abraham. And I was, it just, it was just like, oh my gosh. But what it reminded me of is somebody's discipling that little guy. It's probably his parents, right? He's teaching, he's training. We don't know how his story's going to end, but my gosh, what a gift to hear that. And what a gift their par- that his parents is to him, to disciple him. And then he turned the corner and he said, why are sharks so mean? <laughs> Only a kindergartner can do that. Number two is to make disciples. And, and we, we know who makes disciples, right? God makes a disciple. We don't make a disciple. God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, is the one who sovereignly saves us. The beautiful thing about Christianity, unique to any faith, is that God who created us and redeemed us sent his spirit to reside in us and sets this whole thing up to use us to reach the lost world in the context, this is important to remember, the local church. This is not void of the local church. In Ephesians 3, Paul says this. He says that it's through the church the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. So the local church is very important. This is where we could break off and we could, we could talk about discipleship. We could talk about the condition of us being a disciple and pouring into one another as we pour out into one another's lives, right? That's the condition of being a disciple. We're still learning. We're still growing. We're still getting sanctified, that's, that's what the local church does. It's another sermon for another time. Today, the command here, the thrust of this is to make disciples. So we're going to come back to this command to make disciples because it is that main focus. But let me give you a couple of definitions because I think they're important. We mentioned words like disciple. I have many times already. And what it literally means is learner. A disciple is a student, right? It's a sense of, of someone's life being bound up as Jesus Christ as their master. The, the, the word, the Greek word for that is mathatuo. It's where we get our word math. So those of you that love math and accounting, you should really like this passage today. But it's used, that Greek word, more than 250 times in the Gospels and in the book of Acts alone. In fact, first century believers were known primarily as disciples, not Christians. Christian is only used a couple times. Christian is a noun. It describes who you are. It doesn't describe what you do. We are disciples. We are followers. We're students. We grow. We learn. Discipleship, then, as I said, is a condition of being a disciple. It's like a friendship, right? When you're friends with somebody, you have a friendship, and you're a friend. And that's what disciple, a condition discipleship, a condition of being a disciple. It's a term that describes the condition of my life where I've made the decision to follow Jesus and it describes my intention to be his disciple and to learn from him. So discipleship then is moving from unbelief, unbelief in Jesus, to belief in every area of life because the gospel, remember, is not just the gateway. It's not just the entry point. It's the pathway. So making disciples is engaging someone in the gospel so that they go from not being a believer, not being a follower in Jesus, to being a follower of Jesus Christ. That's that's the thrust of the text. And then the rest of the text is telling us what we then do with them once they become disciples. And that brings us to the, the next two commands. What do we do with these disciples? Once they become believers, what do we do? Well, we baptize them and we teach them. We baptize them and we teach them. Baptism is simply an outward sign of an inward reality. You know this, but it bears repeating. We don't believe that baptism saves you. Baptism does not save you. It is simply an inward reality, an an outward reality of an inward sign, of an inward reality. Outward sign of an inward reality. 
right? It points to what God has done in bringing us out of darkness into the light. What God has done by making us alive again in Christ. It's one of two ordinances. The other one, of course, is the Lord's Supper that Jesus gave us. And, and we believe that the most accurate way to baptize someone um, is through immersion. So we put a big horse trough up here and we get the water as cold as we possibly can and, and we dunk them because, because of what it visualizes, of what, it, what, it, what we see when we see someone buried in that water and we baptize them, we say, buried with Christ into his death and raised to walk in newness of life. It's a beautiful representation. That's baptism. And we do this in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, signifying who their allegiance is to. Right? Baptism is not a superficial response. Right? It's a public declaration of what God alone has done in bringing us alive in Christ. The last thing that we're to do is we're to teach those disciples. The last command is to teach them, to teach them what? To observe everything Christ has commanded. Not some of it, but everything. Now that sounds daunting. That sounds heavy and it sounds burdensome because there's a lot in this book. And I'm convinced that I don't care how smart you are or how much education you've had, theological or otherwise, there's more in here we don't know than what we do know. Because this is the living, breathing word of God. And so we're told, to com- we're told to teach them everything that Jesus has commanded. But here's the thing. It's not just head knowledge, right? Scripture teaches us that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And so the point isn't knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Otherwise, as I said before, we'll become spiritually obese. This is about loving God. This is about knowing God and being known by him. Sounds a lot like abiding, doesn't it? Right? You may have heard, let the Bible, don't read the Bible, let the Bible read you. That's what that means. It's abiding in Christ. Let the spirit work and speak to you through his word. And, and that's what we really do when we, when we teach people. Could be a formal setting, could be an informal setting. But we are to show them, not just teach them with head knowledge, with facts and figures, and, and don't hear me that that's not good because it is good, and, and memorization of Scripture is good. And, and, and my, my faith came alive as an adult sitting in an adult Sunday school class, and that's part of what God used to save me. So it, it is good to do. But we are to show people and to have their hearts stirred to abide in Christ and to be connected to the vine to bear good fruit. It's not just head knowledge for the sake of head knowledge. And so those are the four commands that we hear from Jesus, to go, to make disciples, to baptize them, and to teach them. And so with our remaining time, I want to I go back to this, this command of making dis- disciples. And, and I want to ask a question, and the answer is obvious, but was Jesus' command to go and make disciple a command for all believers? I'll answer that for you. The answer is yes. It's an honest but difficult question. Because the follow-up question should be, have I obeyed it? Have I obeyed the command to make disciples? Do I make disciples? Have I made a disciple? Are there people who are following Jesus right now, in part, at least, as a result of my obedience to invite them to meet Christ? Is that a part of your life right now? I think for many of us, the answer is no. We love Jesus. We love our church family. But the idea of bringing someone into the fold of Christ is intimidating. It's frightening. For some of us, it creates anxiety. There's a lot of introverts in the room. I'm one of them. This isn't Jesus' intent. Jesus' intent is not to intimidate us and frighten or certainly to create anxiety. But this is something we need to address in this area of our faith because this is what it means for the love of Christ to pour out of us. This is the culmination of what we've been talking about for the last five messages. Jesus pouring out of us is not just being nice to people, not just being kind to people, to people shaking their hands, smiling at them, opening doors, 
helping them with food and this and that. Those are important things. Those are things we do in the context of making disciples. But that's not the end all be all. And I think we get intimidated because we think in terms of, of words like evangelism. That, that word scares us. We think about preaching on a street corner, right? Witnessing to people in elevators, polishing up our 30-second elevator speech to share the gospel, right? This isn't, this isn't cold call sales. That's not what this is about. This isn't about notches on a belt. Now, regarding evangelism, that is a gift. That is a gift of the Spirit, the gift of evangelism, and some of you have it. And we all know people that have that. We see them interact with, with people who are non-believers, and it's just, it just it's natural to them because it's a gift. They're gifted that way. And while we may not all be gifted with the gift of evangelism, we are still commanded all to make disciples. So let's walk through some practical and biblical ideas for what Jesus is actually asking us. And, and one thing I think that's helpful is when we think about disciple-making um, disciple and evangelism, it's really, it's the same coin, it's just a different side of the same coin. Evangelism and disciple-making are the same coin, it's just two sides of the same coin. And really what it comes down to is, is whether, you, whether you think of it in terms of evangelism or disciple-making, it begins with the word hello. When you say hello to somebody for the first time, that may be the last time you see them, but for the ones where you're actually engaging them, it begins with hello and then there's intention as you move forward. And that's what we need to do. We need to change our way of thinking. We need to change our paradigm because isn't that after all what Jesus did? Jesus came and changed the paradigm. He turned the world upside down. Kingdom living. Leslie Newbigin was a British missionary to India in the 1930s, and he's known as the father of what is called the missional church movement. And it's this idea that all believers should find themselves, should see themselves as local missionaries in their context, in the context in which you find yourself. Sam talks about this in the core team training classes that we have that we're finishing up here in a couple of weeks. Um, and, and Newbigin's point is that you're a missionary in your context. So if we take the principles of what missionaries who go on the foreign mission field do, how they're trained and how they're equipped, if we take those principles ourselves, we'll be better equipped to go and to make disciples. And so there's five principles that, that they take account of. And, and these aren't new. If you've been on a mission trip, if you've been to Colombia or you've been to Nicaragua or someplace on the foreign mission field, um, You've been equipped to some, to some extent, most likely. You don't just sign up and then pay your money and then one day wake up and go. You're probably involved in at least a handful of training classes of what's the context you're going in, what you're going to be doing, how you should do this. Maybe you need to learn a little language. Um, there's some intentional things you want to do. And so there's five things I want to mention here. I'm not going to go into a great detail on these five because they're all covered in the core team training classes. And I really want to encourage you guys when we have the next round of these coming up at some point this year, I really want you guys to take a part of those. It's core team training classes is kind of a, you know, it's kind of a, a dusty word. It's not the most inviting thing. It's the best thing we got right now. But I want you to think of it in terms of not just training and teaching and core and all that stuff, but it's really what you're learning is how to abide in Christ. And then how that love then pours out into others. That's the essence of those classes. And you're going to learn more about that um, when you come to that class. And one thing that I want you to know, if you may not know, that those classes, um, those six sessions, um, mirror these, this sermon series. So each one of our sermons actually uh, connects with one of those classes. So uh, these are all recorded, and you'll be able to listen to the messages as you go to those classes in the future. So that's my, that's my commercial for that. Um, here's what missionaries do that prepare to go on the mission field. They pray. The second thing is they learn and they understand their context. The third thing, they live authentic and honest lives. This, this Shema living, this living and, and living out the gospel as you go, to talk about it naturally in your lives. Just like you would talk in a room like this to fellow believers about the honesty of your life and, and the brokenness of your life, but how Jesus is redeeming and you're growing, or how you would do that in the context of your small group, um, doing that in the culture around you, not just doing it in your own little bubble of Christianity, but doing that in the world and showing people where your hope is. That's the third. The fourth is you follow up. 
Missionaries follow up and they build relationships. And then the last thing is they ultimately get in the word of God with people. Share the word of God. Study the word of God with them. Now there's a few things that are missing from this list. I didn't mention. I didn't mention that we are to invite in people, invite in people to church. I didn't, I didn't mention that we're to bring them to a church event. I didn't mention that we're supposed to have a tent revival out on the lawn or have a vacation Bible school. And it's not that any of those are bad in and of themselves, because they're not. Those are all good, fruitful events. Some of those will do. But here's the thing. In most missionary contexts, those things aren't immediately effective. And it's because the culture that we live in is either ambivalent or openly antagonistic to the gospel. And the missionary must think of our work in terms of not come and see, but go and tell. And here's why it's important. Historically, the United States was once part of what missiologists, the people that study church and the mission, but they called the United States was part of what was called Christendom. This is to say that regardless of the people in the United States that may call themselves actual Christians and follow Jesus, that the lifestyle of a Christian and the worldview of a Christian by non-Christians or nominal Christians or atheists are at least looked upon favorably. That used to be the case, but it's increasingly less and less true. What this looked like practically is that churches could open their doors and they could put on programs and they could have their Sunday schools and their vacation Bible schools and their midweek prayer, and they could reasonably expect people to show up. And people would show up. And I remember actually experiencing that after 9-11 happened. Maybe you did in your churches. People were more, their ears perked up back then. That was 20 years ago. A lot has changed in 20 years. A lot has changed in 10 years. The truth, this truth is less and less true. Today, most of the people that we engage have little knowledge of Jesus the true Jesus. They have little knowledge of the Bible, little knowledge of Christianity, and little knowledge of the life in the local church. And if they do have a knowledge of any of those things, they're more likely to distrust than, and oppose than not. Even in our context, even tucked away here in West St. Louis County where there are churches aplenty, Henry Avenue, which is the street that runs out here, is a very short street. There's two businesses, four houses, and two churches on this street alone. And if you just start driving around, there's churches all over the place. And there's a lot more than you think, because a lot of them are meeting places you wouldn't think they're meeting. They're meeting in schools and other buildings. But that's the context that we live in. In this context, most of your friends, most of your coworkers, your neighbors, your classmates, they don't know Jesus and they don't trust the Bible. And they certainly don't trust the church. It's just the reality. And this is somewhat generational. So I know you probably love research. But research of the millennial and the Gen Z crowd, which is basically 40 years old or younger, shows that almost all of their immediate associations with Christianity are not good. They're negative. Here's how they see you. And here's how they see me. They see, they see us as hypocritical. They see us as homophobic. They see us as too political. They see us as judgmental. They see us as out of touch. They see us as pushy. They see us as anti-science, and they see us as a bunch of conspiracy theorists. But what does this mean for us? It means if you want to see people that you love or people that you want to love in your community come to know Jesus, we have to first acknowledge that this is our reality. And it's up to you and me to be the missionary in this context. Your role as a disciple is to represent Christ in a way that accurately reflects his truth and his love for the world. Because what's happening is people less and less are seeing an accurate view of who Christ is. And I'm afraid that it's been exacerbated over these last few years during COVID. It's got ugly out there, guys. But it's also gotten ugly in the church. And people are looking, they're watching, they're paying attention, and it hasn't gone well for us. So we have to rethink. Now, 
Some of you may push back on this idea, and I know that because I pushed back on this. I, I, was, I was talking to Sam the other day about this. I'm like, is this, I don't feel like this is my reality. And, and what I want to say to all of us, if you're pushing back on this and this is not your context or you don't think it's your context, what I encourage all of us, and I'm talking to myself just as much as I'm, ta- I'm talking to you, is we need to step outside of our Christian bubble. We're too internally focused. It, we're, too, we're in that bubble, and we have to step outside of our bubble. But I think most of it, eh, maybe not most, but a lot of you are acutely aware of this reality because it's where your children are. It's where your grandchildren are. It may be how they engage you. And so you're aware of this context. But whether or not this is your reality, this is the culture that we're submerged in. And here's the thing, when you go farther down the generational lines, we mentioned Gen Z and millennials under 40, so 40s, 30s, when you get down into the mid-30s, the early 30s, the 20s, down into the teens and the preteens, it doesn't get better, it gets worse. And this is the culture they're being raised in. The millennials are raising their kids in this culture, so it's not going to correct itself unless we, with the gospel, the good news of the gospel, intervene and love people as Jesus loves us. You are the missionary. You are the one that needs to show people in your life that Jesus is different than what they've heard and what they've experienced. Let me give you just a couple of examples in Scripture. Peter was a missionary. Peter was a missionary in his context. First Peter, he says, In your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do this with gentleness and respect. Paul was a missionary in his context. Colossians 4 says to walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how how you ought to answer each person. Stomping your feet, wringing your hands about how our culture is going down the drain isn't going to make disciples, guys. It might anger some of your fellow believers, and it may even call them to some sort of action that's probably not the best sort of action, but it doesn't advance the kingdom, and it doesn't make disciples. We have to season our words with salt. We have to make our words tasty. This takes work. This takes intention. It takes prayer. It takes talking to one another. That's part of discipleship, is talking to one another about how we're engaging the world and what we're doing wrong, where we're just, we're, we're just not doing what we need to be doing. What can we do to be more like Christ? This is Paul's way, and I think Peter's way, of saying that, that we need to be winsome and kind in our words because it's the kindness of Jesus that leads to repentance. Let me, let me end with three suggestions of how you can live on mission and make disciples. Uh, there's three of these. The first one is to know and engage the concerns of the world. We just need to get educated. We can't, we can't put our heads in the sand or, or lean into just secular news outlets to get uh, our information from and to be equipped. We need to know the questions of our time. We need to know how the gospel speaks into those questions in our time because the gospel speaks into everything in a sufficient way to meet the deepest needs of the human heart. And we know this. And so it means that it, means that it speaks, the gospel speaks into sexuality. It speaks into political loyalties. It speaks into environmentalism. It speaks, it speaks into racism It speaks into literally everything that anybody outside the church can throw at us. The gospel has an answer to every problem of the human heart. In fact, the gospel has the answer to every question of the human heart. The answer of the gospel will always be the most loving, the most kind, and will point towards the flourishing of people. It will always do that. If your answer and your interaction isn't loving and isn't kind and isn't for the human flourishing of that other person that you're talking to, then you need to take account of how you're abiding in Christ. It doesn't mean the message will be received well because the gospel is offensive. 
but we're called to be loving. We're called to be kind. We're called to season our words and to be kind and have their best interests in mind. The second is hospitality is a great apologetic of our time. The word hospitality, which is very familiar to all of us. We all have a desire to be hospitable. We have these signs now that they sell. Hobby Lobby says, welcome to your home. Hospitality in the Greek literally means kindness to strangers. Excuse me, love of strangers. That's literally what the word means. If you want to accurately represent the gospel in our day and time, open up your house. We're post-COVID for the most part. There are still people that, that that's going to be an issue with, and that's fine. We need to respect that. But, but it's changed to the point now where there are more people that will accept an invitation. And so open your house. There, there are a couple of reasons. The first one is that our culture has, has gotten so busy and frantic that hospitality is dying. And the church is leading out on this. The church is just as busy and frantic as anybody. And we have to model this idea of rest, of Sabbath, weekly. How many of your neighbors do you actually know by name? How often are they in your home to share a meal and to have a conversation about life? These are the contexts where we can have actual, authentic gospel conversations. The second is remember that a lot of people don't have a context for what Christian living looks like anymore. They have not seen Christian parents discipline their kids with grace. They've never sat as a family and prayed over a meal. They've never seen just normal, everyday dynamics of a church, of lives giving over to Christ. There's something about sharing a meal with someone that makes it impossible to be judgmental when you're sharing a meal. Jesus did this. Jesus sat down and ate with sinners. And he took a lot of flack. And you might take a lot of of flack too. But engage that. Be hospitable. Welcome people into your home. The third thing is to pray. And this is probably where we need to begin. Because it doesn't matter how spiritually mature you are. It doesn't matter how bold you are. It doesn't matter whether you have a gift of evangelism or not or how much time you have, you can pray for the lostness of people in your life. You can pray for the people who are lost, to pray for the people that the Lord burdens your heart with. You can do this every day. If you know your neighbors by name, write them down and pray for them. If you don't, find out who your adjacent neighbors are. At least find their names, discover their names, and pray for them. Ask Jesus to give you non-awkward and fruitful discussions with them about life and about faith. You can pray that specifically. Let me, let me give you an example, a failed example from my own life recently. Um, I had to give, um, get some blood work done a few weeks ago. So on my calendar, about a week out was I had an appointment at Quest Diagnostics over here off of Clayton Road. And I knew this, and it was just something I needed to do. And I went, took less than five minutes. I asked the woman how she was doing. She asked me how I was doing. I said, great. I said, how are you doing? And she was horrible. And she told me, right? Her, her house was a mess. It was breaking down. Her work wasn't, her new job wasn't what she thought it would be because it didn't pay as much. Her kids are a wreck. The only thing she was thankful for was her car worked so she could get to work because she lives some, some time away. And I was like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And then she stuck me and I gave blood and I left. And the minute I got back to my car, I realized you just missed an opportunity. You just missed an opportunity to to at least tell her that God loves her in spite of what she's going, going through. And that could have opened up other doors. My point is, I knew that was on my calendar for a week. And if I would have put that on my, on my prayer calendar and just said, God, open my heart that I'm available to whatever happens, I would have been prepared for that. But I wasn't. I missed it. Now, sometimes those things happen in the moment, and I just didn't. I didn't. I didn't heed what the Spirit was doing in the moment. But if we're intentional, like I should have been, I think that I would have been able, I would have honored God in that way. Let me end this way. Chris, you can go ahead and come on up. I told you that I was going to circle back around to this idea of speaking about the kingdom of God because making disciples is really kingdom living. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, We are, you've heard, ambassadors. 
That's familiar language. It should be. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf to a dying world, be reconciled to God. Now, this idea that God is making his appeal through you and me, it blows my mind. God is working through us and he's inviting us into this process of saving people, of being reconciled to him as ambassadors. Our message is to be reconciled to God. An ambassador is someone who is an authorized representative in our context of Jesus and his sovereign rule. We like the being the representative of Jesus part, but the sovereign rule of Jesus over our lives, we don't like that so much. Ambassadors reside in an embassy, right? The United States Embassy in Germany represents the United States and our values and our principles in the country of Germany or pick your favorite country. We are ambassadors for Christ and our embassy is the local church. It's Emmanuel Fellowship. This is our embassy. This is a real-life embassy set in the present time that represents a future kingdom. We represent a kingdom to come. How did Jesus tell us to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We represent that kingdom in the here and in the now. The message of reconciliation that we have is known to others only when ambassadors for Christ spread it. That's the only reason people are going to know it. Our message is one of reconciliation. It's one of peace. What we as disciples bring into the lives of our neighbors, of our friends, of our coworkers, of our children, of our grandchildren, of the clerks, the people who take our blood, the people that we run into, it's a message of peace. Peace with God and peace with others. Reconciliation. That's what we should be about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to hear from your spirit through your word. There's so much more that could be said. Lord, and my prayer is that in each one of our hearts, you would uniquely speak to us and maybe put a name in our heart of someone to pray for, someone to engage, and for us just to be in it for the long haul, God. For us to realize that we, we don't have to be hasty we just need to be faithful. We just need to be available to you. Work that in us, God. Take away selfishness. Help us to see the glory of being an ambassador for you, of having this beautiful message of reconciliation. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For our time of response, I want us to sit under Jesus and let Jesus be our disciple. I want, I want the words of Jesus as we process what we've heard and as we respond. I want the words of Jesus um, to disciple us in the early chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, we know that John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's preaching a message um, to repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus comes into Galilee and he's baptized by John. And then Jesus is led up into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And he spends 40 days in the wilderness. And he comes down out of the wilderness and Jesus began to preach, repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is here and now. It's not after he's gone, it's here and now. While his ministry starts, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then the next thing he does is he calls his disciples. He says, come on guys, follow me. Follow me and let me show you what this kingdom living looks like. And I'm going to make you fishers of men. And he began to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. And he started to heal people and to show them what the eventual kingdom will really look like when everything is healed, everybody is healed. No tears, no mourning, nothing but joy and awe and wonder. And large crowds followed him as he gave this message. And so he went up to the mountain. 
and his disciples came and the crowds came with him and he called his disciples in close. He said, come here guys, I got something I want to tell you. Jesus calls his disciples and he gives them an overview called the Sermon on the Mount, an overview of the privileges and the demands in the kingdom of God. He's like, I'm going to show you for the next three years what living in the kingdom of God looks like, but first I want to tell you a few things. I'm not going to read the whole thing or we'll be here all day, but I'm going to read a little bit of this. And I want you to reflect on this. This is what kingdom living is. And ask the Spirit to speak to you as I read these and as you listen. This is what... Matthew says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It is no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, then, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Come, say.